Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Where Do We Begin, the podcast. My name's Harper and my co-host is Jackson. How are you? Hey, man. How are you? I'm not too bad. And today, who have we got on the show? Uh, today, we've got Daniel Garb, famous uh, Fox Sports uh, presenter. Yeah, um, pretty big name in the uh, round ball game. And we'll be calling it football throughout the podcast, yep, just for definitely. anyone who likes to call it soccer might get him mixed up. But yeah, what did we make of our last interview? Uh, last week was amazing. Yeah, Brie Davey. Brie Davey. Uh, yeah, she, she spoke really well about her transition from AFL to soccer, back to AFL. That was really good. Yeah, a lot of decisions she had to make, so very, very interesting listening. Yeah, she's been involved in some massive moments, that big crowd against America for a second game for the Matildas, like 30,000 or something, and then another 30,000 crowd for the first AFLW game, and then grand final, was it 53,000? 50, yeah, 53,000 at the Adelaide Oval. 2019? 2019, yeah. 2019, yeah, that was the record at the time for biggest women's Sport. sporting crowd in Australia. Yeah, which uh, which was overtaken this year, but... Yeah. And that was amazing as well. Feel the G. Did you go to that cricket? I didn't, know, but uh, I found out later that my little sister was part of the the girls who walk out with the with the team. Oh. So right. you just see on the coverage um, with the national anthems going, it's going past all the team and my little sister's there. Oh, fair enough. You didn't, and you didn't know. No, I didn't know. I didn't think I told. <laughs> I think uh, we should get into the... Daniel Garb. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So let's rip into it. Okay, now on the phone, we've got the man who, as voted for by the Where Do We Begin Association of Elite Journalists, is the best journalist in the world. It's Daniel Garb. How are you, Garby? Uh, yeah, well, that's a, um, a slight exaggeration there, fellas, <laughs> but I'll take the compliment nonetheless. Yeah, well, on the show, we just like to uh, go through your life and your career in journalism. Obviously, you're a pretty well-known journalist. So you grew up in South Africa for four years. What was that like? Well, I don't remember much. I left when I was four, but uh, <laughs> I wasn't, uh, there's not too much I can take from that. But uh, I've been back a number of times. So, yeah, I still uh, South Africa is close to my heart in a way. Still got lots of family there. But, yeah, moved to Perth when I was very young and uh, – Grew up in Perth, so I'll always be a West Australian at heart. Spent 20 years there, and then then it was Melbourne. Family lives in Melbourne now, uh, London for five years, of course, and now I'm in Sydney. So been around a, a fair bit. So how was growing up in Perth? Did you enjoy it? Oh, I loved growing up in Perth. Yeah, it was fantastic. It was uh, it's a great place to be a young kid. The weather's always good. Um, you know, I lived around a lot of my friends from school and the school was close. So we had a great way of life in, uh, in Perth. It was probably the same as many other kids, a lot of sport and a lot of time in the pool. But when the weather's good, those things last a bit longer. So, yeah, loved it and, uh, and loved sport in Perth as well. West Coast Eagles fan, Perth Glory fan. They gave me a lot of uh, success, obviously, as a supporter and, and other sports as well. So, yeah, life in Perth as a kid was, uh, was fantastic. So you're known for being big football or round ball game man. Uh, what was your first football memory? First football memory. So probably well, there's two things that spring to mind. Uh, obviously in Perth growing up in the in the late 80s, early 90s, we didn't have an NSL team back then. The glory only came in in 1996. So didn't get to go to too many professional games. Uh, but I remember there was one year where Millville came across to play the WA state team. It would have been in the late 80s. And my dad took me along because it was, you know, a rare big professional game in uh, in Perth. And, I mean, I was very young, but I still remember an image of the ground and, uh, and the fact that we were watching a top-flight English team. Millville were in the first division then, I'm pretty sure. So I had a young Teddy Sheringham in their side. That was a pretty cool memory at probably five or six years of age. And uh, also the 1989 FA Cup final. Remember back in those days, and you boys have probably grown up in a, in a different era. Back in those days, we got like one live football game from overseas a year outside of World Cups or, or big Socceroos games. And that was the FA Cup final. In 1989, Liverpool played against uh, Everton and uh, the Reds won in what was a classic affair, 3-2 in extra time. So... I remember that game uh, very well. And apart from playing the game, which I did from five, six years of age, those are the two memories that stand out. 
Is that why you became a Liverpool fan? It is, yeah. That game actually is the reason. So I watched that game and my grandmother bought me the old VHS tape of that game, which you boys probably have no knowledge of either, VHS, <laughs> a long time before DVDs. But uh, I would have watched that game like 200 times. Literally, my school holidays was like I'd wake up every morning and watch the 1989 FA Cup final, Liverpool-Everton. I pretty much knew every single piece of commentary and every single player's movement throughout that whole game. I'd watch the 1992 Eagle grand final win over Geelong. And uh, I'd watched the 1990 World Cup story of Italy. And I just watched those three tapes over and over again. That's pretty much how I started every day in school holidays. So, uh, yeah, that game had a big influence on me becoming a Reds fan. I, I did recognize there was something about the club that just resonated with me and, and seemed a bit special. And, uh, yeah, from that day on, I've been a devoted Red. Now, you talk about Liverpool getting success in the 89 FA Cup final, but I'm a big Arsenal fan, and they, of course, won the league in 89. Do you remember that game at all? Well, no, we didn't get league games back then, so no, I don't. Um, Any uh, I mean, I did, I've learned about it later, of course, but I don't remember watching it at the time. Obviously, uh, later on, we, we learned about it. But uh, you know, back then, we only got an hour highlights program, and I mean, I, I didn't really watch. I wasn't allowed to watch the highlights program was on at 10 o'clock at night, if I remember, on, on the ABC. So I was too young to take it all in, but obviously I learned about the game in, in the years to come. And uh, and to be honest, as a Liverpool fan, yeah, Arsenal won it in 89. We then won the league again in 1990. But then the Reds basically fell apart. I mean, we became a mid-table team very quickly. It's very similar to what happened to, to Manchester United uh, soon after Sir Alex Ferguson left. And to be honest, what's happened to Arsenal as well in the last few years. We don't talk about that, mate. Dropped, dropped, <laughs> dropped, I had to give you some sort of comeback on that, but dropped <laughs> off, our, off our pedestal very, very quickly. So as a youngster, when everyone started supporting Manchester United as they won title after title, it was pretty hard to uh, to stick with the Reds. But I managed to rode out the tough times and lucky enough have had some success since. But yes, I know very well of uh, what happened in 89 in the league, but the FA Cup memory at least, is one that I can uh, the one that I can maintain. So, what made you aspire to become a journalist? Well, I mean, I always loved sport enormously. Like I was you know, ridiculously passionate about sport, and like all my mates liked sport, but I seemed to be just a little bit more fanatical. I mean, I would sit in class and write out like my all-time Perth Glory team, my all-time West Coast Eagles team. This is like during school classes, and all my mates loved sport as well. But I just seemed to be a little bit more intense about it in terms of studying teams and tactics and, and stories and all those sorts of things. I was just obsessed with sports news. I got to sleep early on a Friday night because I couldn't wait for the paper to come on a Saturday morning, the sports paper. I was just that kind of kid. I'd watch the sports news every single night. So I was always interested in it. But then I didn't really set on a career in it first day. I mean, I in high school, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And then I did a commerce degree at university, I started off doing one and only halfway through uni did I fall into the media and start to become interested in it. And um, I knew I wanted to work in sport, but the media was something I was, wasn't was necessarily sure about. But then I uh, managed to work my way in, which uh, was great. And, uh, and things started to fall in place quickly after that. Now, in 2007, like you said, you moved over to Melbourne. You started working for SEN. What was that like? Yeah, it was great. I mean... You know, I'd gone from Perth where I was sort of, you know, Perth's obviously a smaller city. So you start to, after a couple of years working in Perth, you start to get known by a few people and make your way up. And then you move to Melbourne and you almost drop back down to uh, to a starting position again, to the back of the grid, so to speak. You're a, a smaller fish in a, in a bigger, much bigger pond. So it was a bit of a transition in that sense. But uh, SCN was great because... Straight away, I said I wanted to work in football, and the A-League was booming at that stage. It was the first few years. The Melbourne Victory were, and they still are, but they were incredibly popular then and managed to get into SEN as a... I produced a show in the afternoon, but I also produced their Melbourne Victory coverage, and I was sideline reporter and uh, and very much involved with the football. So that was great for me. It gave me a lot of confidence and a good way in with the football and led to me going to the 2010 World Cup with SEN, which... Uh, that was big for me in terms of believing that I could work in, in the game potentially full-time, which I've done for a while. So, yeah, SEN was a, a great opportunity and one I took and ran with and it provided me with lots of great memories. So you did mention it, the big uh, first World Cup in Africa. How was that experience? 
Yeah, it was incredible. I didn't go to 2006, which is obviously you know, the number one uh, World Cup for Australian fans, but you know, 2010 was still special. Firstly, being in being born in South Africa, um, you know, it was just a lock for me to go there. I had family to stay with, and I was never going to miss a World Cup in South Africa. It was really special in that sense. But also, the Socceroos were still in the midst of the golden generation. I mean, 2010, even though the Duca had left and one or two others, the majority of the team was still the golden generation with a lot of quality and a real belief that we could go through the group. And we only missed out on, on goal difference. And had we lost to Germany... Uh, by a couple less goals and had our act in shape in that first game, we probably would have made it through. So, uh, yeah, it was great in that sense. I mean, there was just so much excitement around the team and so many supporters around the team and, and being able to cover them, um, you know, for radio back in Australia as a youngster was my first real big football assignment full-time on my own. And I just absolutely loved it and ran with it and worked hard and, and had a great time. So, yeah, I mean, only good memories from that World Cup. Yeah, you mentioned all the supporters following over across. I must confess, I was one of them. So, um, right. Went to the World Cup. Um, yeah, it was just an amazing time. Uh, following everyone around, how did you um, see our performances? So we Germany first, then Ghana in, was it Rustenburg? And then Serbia yeah. in Nelspruit. How did you see the inv- individual performances? Yeah, well, Germany was a disaster. I mean, I know that German side was brilliant and, and they surprised a few people because they had a young squad and a few players that weren't really known outside of the Bundesliga in Germany. I mean, a young Mesut Ezel who burst on the scene and uh, a young Muller who burst on the scene. But uh, Australia still played way below their capabilities. And I remember just being so upset, like many Australian fans were, after that game because, you know, we could have been better organised and kept our shape. And if we had done that, you know, we might have only lost 2 nil or something like that and then been in a good position still to, to make it through the group. Once we lost 4 nil, well, we knew we had to win our, our last two games pretty much to have a good chance. So that first game was, was devastating. We played so poorly. But uh, I thought the Ghana game was, I think it's arguably one of our best performances ever at a World Cup. It's right up there with our best 90-minute performances. I mean, one nil up early, then we get unlucky with a 50-50 red card to Harry Kiel. So we're down to 10 men and they convert the penalty. It's one all up against the side of course, Africans. They've got enormous support there, and they're very comfortable in that environment. And I just thought we played so well. We controlled the game. We had the better chances and should have won it with 10 men for 70 minutes. It was just fantastic, uh, that game. And then we beat Serbia in the final game, which is great. Unfortunately, not enough to get through. So, you know, still a, more than a pass mark in terms of performance at that World Cup. They were really positive. But just that first game was such a disappointment and uh, ultimately cost us the chance of getting through the group. Now, you mentioned Ghana, group stage opponents, got to the quarterfinals in that World Cup. That surprised a lot of people. Do you reckon we Australia could have got that far, even further than 06? Oh, I don't know about further than 06, potentially. I mean, if Australia had beaten Italy, they would have made the semis. So, um, but I think we could have, you know, got past... Yeah, potentially to a quarterfinal. We had so much talent. I mean, I think if that World Cup, the combination we needed up front was Kuehl and Cahill. I mean, the team was solid all the way through. But if we played Timmy and Harry together up front, I think we could have beaten a lot of teams. That first game, for whatever reason, um, you know, we didn't start with that combination up front. Tim went defensive. That didn't work. And then, of course, they played together for 20-odd minutes against Ghana before Harry was sent off. And then, of course, Harry suspended for the Serbia game. So they never had a chance to play together. I think if we kept that combination up top with Brett Holman in behind, who was scoring goals, I think there's no doubt that Australia could have gone far in that World Cup because defensively we were very solid and we had a well-organised midfield. But, uh, yeah, that first game just cost us and, and pinned not at all wrong. And unfortunately from there, uh, we just didn't recover enough. But the talent there was, was superb. So your role in that World Cup, did you travel around the country a lot following Australia, but did you also follow other games? Yeah, I went to a few. So my family lives in Cape Town. Um, so basically as soon as Australia were out, uh, so I followed Australia for the group stages, but as soon as Australia were uh, were knocked out, I went straight to Cape Town and stayed there until the semi-final. I think I flew back. I was back in Australia for the final. So I went to Holland against... Ghana, I think, in Cape Town. And then I saw uh, a holiday against Cameroon, it might have been. And then I saw, of course, uh, Germany against Argentina in, uh, in Cape Town, a quarterfinal, which was 
I was sorry, Portugal Spain quarter final in Cape Town, and the Germany Argentina semi final, where uh, the Argentinian uh, the Germans blew them away. Uh, they were just so dominant, and uh, Aradona was coaching Argentina and had no answers. So some massive games in Cape Town, which I was lucky enough to see and soak up the World Cup atmosphere, and then flew back to watch win it. And I love that Spanish team; they're my favourite international team ever outside of Australia. So watching them win it was great. Now moving on from that World Cup. After about a year at SEN, you moved on to Channel 9. What, uh, what did that role entail? So I was just a general news producer at, uh, at Channel 9, which taught me a lot, a lot about writing, a lot about TV, a lot about how television news is put together. And uh, you know, I basically took the job to, uh, to learn a bit about TV at a, at a high level, uh, which Channel 9 Melbourne is renowned for. And uh, I got a bit frustrated towards the end because I got pigeonholed as a news producer and I wasn't given a chance in sport, which, um, which was a shame. And I, at the end, I was looking at other options and thankfully the Fox job came up. But uh, I loved you know, also producing news and the creativity that came with it and, and choosing you know, the stories and which stories are more important than others. And then the influence you have on, on the way people you know, view situations because it's such a, a well-watched news service that uh, you have a big influence on on society in your city and that's a big responsibility so yeah I love that and just learned a lot by the time I went to Fox and got into TV I mean I just knew that I was ready to give it a go because of the time I spent learning from very good uh, experienced people at Channel 9. So yeah, obviously you just mentioned the move to Fox Sports is that sort of the holy grail for a sports journalist? Oh well my job certainly felt like the holy grail, yeah. I mean, I don't know if Fox Sports as a, as a network is. It depends on the position you've got, of course. But uh, for me at that time, I mean, it was not a position that I would have wanted. And, and yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty pretty valuable and something that was, you know, providing an experience that so many sports journalists and sports lovers would have dreamed to have, to have had. I was just so fortunate and, and loved every minute of it. But yeah, basically, it was a freelance position that became available. I uh, made the call to Fox and put my name forward, and there were no guarantees that anything would happen. But uh, basically, uh, I took the punt, quit Channel 9, moved across to London, packed up my stuff, and thought, well, I'll give it a go. If it works out awesome. If it doesn't, well, at least I won't have any regrets. And, and that's what I did. So it was wonderful. I mean, I, I had five years covering the Premier League, but so many other big events, um, you know, a couple of Ashes tours. Uh, two British Opens, the Commonwealth Games, Davis Cup ties, so many other big stories, plenty of Socceroos, uh, friendlies and big games around uh, uh, the uh, Europe as well. So it was just, yeah, a once-in-a-lifetime thing that I'll remember for the rest of my life. Yeah, you spoke about all those events you covered over there, the Premier League, the Ashes, all different stuff. What's your personal highlight, sporting highlight, from your five years over there? Cool. I mean, you know, the five Premier League seasons, you know, as a whole, I mean, I don't think I can pick just one moment that sits above the rest. I mean, you know, World Cups were great. They're, they're right up there. We've spoken about about those. So I went to Brazil during my time in London, but then also went to Russia when I was back in Australia. Uh, so those two stand out. The Ashes Tours are fantastic. But, you know, five Premier League seasons, every Premier League game is just such a big event. I loved every one of them. Uh uh, the, I was there for Aguero's last second winner against QPR to win the title. That's unforgettable. I mean, Liverpool didn't win the league in the end in 2014, but that whole run was just some of the most brilliant football I've ever watched. And as a Liverpool fan, I mean, some of the wins we had, you know, the double over United, being 4-0 up over Arsenal inside 25 minutes or something. Sorry to remind you of that. I mean, that was liberating. <laughs> And so many other big games as well. That that stands out. And then Leicester winning it. I mean, just the greatest sports story imaginable. And was lucky enough to cover that very closely. So they all stand out. But to be honest, the whole experience was just a highlight. It's hard to pick one thing above the rest. So you moved back here in 2016, I think it was. Um, started covering the domestic game. Uh, so what was the transition from the big bright lights of the Premier League to the A-League like? Yeah, I mean, it was a change, obviously, but uh, I didn't really have any choice in the matter. In Fox had lost the right. Uh, I mean, there was be, there'd be no position there with Optus because they just take Premier League TV, of course. So uh, 
look, it made sense to come home and leave on a high, and I'm happy I did that. And Look, it was a big transition, but I love Australian football. I always have, and I enjoy covering Australian football stories. And, yeah, there's a few games where you were like, geez, you know, wasn't long ago I was inside a Premier League stadium and this doesn't quite compare, but there were, other, there were some other games that were just awesome. Big A-League finals and big derbies with big crowds or big Socceroos games in Australia that I that I love. So I can't really complain. Also got to go to the 2018 World Cup, the 2019 Cricket World Cup, the 2019 Asian Cup, you know, those sorts of things when I was in Australia. So I still had some great experiences along with that. And it was also nice to be home. I mean, I, I love living in London, but the, the weather gets to you after a while and yeah. After five years, you really do appreciate the Australian sun and being able to play golf and go to the beach and things like that. So those sorts of things I really enjoy too. So after living in both cities, can you definitively answer the question, which city is better, Melbourne or Sydney? <laughs> uh, good question. All right, how do I break it down? Uh, all right, for sport, no doubt Melbourne is king. I good mean, call. You can't be. I mean, like I grew up in an AFL city in, in Perth, so I don't really... I'm not really interested in rugby league that much. So footy in Melbourne, I, I enjoy in terms of the dominant sport. Uh, football's pretty even in uh, in both cities, it must be said. But there's just a better sports culture in Melbourne, I must say. Sydney fans are a bit wishy-washy with their sport. They're, uh, they're up and down, although the football fans are pretty good. But, uh, you know, they're event goers here more than uh, nailed on sports fans. So I prefer that about uh, about Melbourne. Sydney weather kills it, obviously, and that makes living in the city a lot better. The beach, playing golf is far more pleasant. But, uh, you know, it's so expensive to live here and finding parking and all those sorts of things is a pain in the backside. So, look, there's positives in both. If I had to choose one right now for the rest of my life to live in, I would say uh, Melbourne. Yes, that's what we like to hear. There's certain aspects of living in Sydney that I really enjoy as well, mainly the weather and, uh, and not freezing when I go for a round of golf. Now, in your time at Fox Sports, you worked with some really respected names. Who is um, the person that you really kind of um, – they took you under your wing. Who Was there a particular person at Fox Sports? I mean, there are a few. I mean, look, Murray Shaw had a big influence on me. He's the executive producer of, of football, or was. He's not there anymore, but he was for a number of years. And oh, look, he's the one that I'm indebted to more than anyone. He gave me a chance out of nowhere and – and backed me and allowed me to learn and uh, gave me great opportunities and persisted with me. He didn't just, uh, you know, give up on me or anything like that. So uh, Murray Shaw is the one that stands out. Without him, I wouldn't have had those experiences at all. So I'm very grateful uh, to him and a couple of other bosses as well. Otherwise, you know, everyone there is someone that I've had good relationships with over the years. Andy Harper is someone that I like a lot and enjoy spending time with enormously. A really good man. Now, everyone else in the football department is great. Simon Hill I've done a podcast with for the last couple of years and really enjoyed that. So they've all got uh, plenty um, in terms of, uh, you know, contributing to things that you pick up uh, along the way. But, uh, you know, Murray Shaw's the one that stands out. He's certainly the bigger, biggest contributor to my time at Fox. Now, unfortunately, about a month ago, you got made redundant by Fox Sports in a huge cut, really. Um is there any bitterness or anything like that at all? <laughs> no, not at all. That's good. Um, you know, it's part of it's part of business, and you know, it's on the record that Fox is struggling enormously. I mean, it's just no, there's no secret that they're losing a lot of money, and that just goes with the territory. And look, maybe there would have been if I was young and on the way up, and, and things like that. But I was very lucky that I had nine incredible years at Fox, and some of the experiences that you know we've just spoken about. I mean, there's people who would dream to have those experiences for for half a year in their life and I was able to have it for five years and I'll remember that forever and uh, I was very very fortunate and yes I worked hard to maintain it and worked hard for the company but still very grateful for the experiences that I had so no no bitterness at all I had a great time and uh, considering the changes that are being made there it was a good time to to get out basically and go do something else so uh, no none at all. So how big of a role does uh, social media take in your job as a journalist? Good question. Um, look, things like Instagram and Facebook are, are pretty personal things. I, I wouldn't say that has so much of, of an influence, but Twitter certainly does. Twitter is a very big factor in the life of, of any journalist, I think, and how you uh, monitor Twitter, how you use Twitter to your advantage, I think is something that, 
a lot of journalists need to consider closely, and I certainly do. Uh, firstly, I think it's imperative that anyone in the media is on Twitter. How active you are is up to you personally, but you need to be on it because you know, stories break and they break on Twitter first. And, uh, you know, if you're not on Twitter, well, then you're learning out, you're learning about them a little bit uh, later than the rest, and that's not a good starting point. So, yeah, it's very important in that regard. But then how you use it is, is crucial as well. I mean, there's people who can write stupid things and they can hurt themselves, obviously, um, but there's others who can use Twitter to write, you know, bits of information that may be insightful, opinions that may annoy some people, but overall... You know, show that they know what they're talking about, and that can lead to good opportunities. It can lead to things like radio contracts and the rest, which I've certainly found has helped me a bit. And uh, and it helps you understand the public's feeling on a story. I mean, it doesn't give you the full indication, but you know, if you read it a lot and check out responses to things that people are writing or that you're writing, it gives you a really good take on on how people feel about something. And, and as a reporter, it's your job to to report to the public and report how the public are feeling about things from time to time. And then there's also moments where you have to give them that insight. I mean, it's a balancing act in the media. So, no, I find uh, Twitter to be the the most important tool, obviously, social media-wise for anyone in the game. And and the way in which you use it is is crucial. If there's one lesson I can give young reporters coming through on Twitter, it's if you have any doubt about writing something or tweeting something, just don't do it because you're not going to lose anything by not tweeting. You can only lose something by tweeting, but you can also gain a lot if you are smart with it and use it in the right way. Now, speaking of social media, we're recording this on Anzac Day, and a few years ago, uh, another football journalist, Scott McIntyre, said some controversial things on social media about the Anzacs and um, lost his job at SBS. And more recently, uh, Scott has been over in Japan working doing some J-League stuff, stuff like that. And um, he was in jail for a while, unfortunately, for trying to see his kids. And you, you're you a guy who's been overseas traveling a lot. Have you ever been caught up in any uh, weird laws overseas? <laughs> um, not that I remember. Um, yeah, Scott's situation is very sad, what happened to him in Japan. But thankfully, it looks at the moment that he's, he's out the other side of it and uh, – and getting his life back on track, and I, and I hope that he's reunited with his kids soon. I mean, I haven't had anything you know, overly severe. Whenever I've gone into the Middle East, we've often had our cameras confiscated because they can make life difficult for you, and then you go on a, a wild goose chase for, for a day or so trying to find the necessary document to get your camera back. No matter what you bring into the country, they always find a way to seize it to the, uh, to the Middle Eastern governments, which is, which is a pain, but... Every time we've been able to get them back, which is uh, which is all good. But uh, outside of that, no, nothing too uh, severe. It's been uh, just enjoyable experiences in a, a bunch of random places. So, what are the best places you visited uh, in your job and personal life, really? <sighs> best places. I mean, yeah. I mean, look, I've been lucky enough to go to some major cities like. Um, you know, Rio de Janeiro and New York and, and places like that on, on work trips, which have been awesome. But uh, the experiences that stand out are the ones to random places that you never thought you would ever go to and probably won't ever again. Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan stand out. When they're, twi- when they're one speech on Socceroos World Cup qualifying trips, which were just awesome, eye-opening experiences. I mean, in Kyrgyzstan, we covered a game of dead goat polo. <laughs> which is like their national sport. I don't want to go into too much detail, but yeah, dead goat polo. You can basically work it out. Look it up on on Google if you don't believe me. But that is like a big sport for them, and just having an insight into that is like wow, what a different world. And yeah, I mean the fans in both countries were just so thrilled to have Australia there and to have a big nation like Australia playing a big World Cup qualifier in their backyard. It was just. So energetic, the whole experience. So I loved that enormously. And I was lucky enough to go there. Morocco as well was a different place and a cool place that I've been to. And then you know, all over Europe for different different assignments here and there. Czech Republic and Moscow and uh, Russia for the World Cup as a whole and, and all these different places. So, yeah, absolutely loved and was very lucky to have all those unique experiences. So you did mention being in South Africa before. Um, one of my personal favourite stadiums that I've ever been to is Cape Town Stadium. What are some of yours? Oh, I mean, any place in Cape Town, 
stands out. That's uh, that's definitely one of the best uh, in terms of other stadiums that that really had a big impact on me. I mean, look, the Premier League stadiums uh, are the ones that resonate the most. I mean, you know, as a Liverpool fan, going to Anfield every time was special, and I was lucky uh, working on the coverage that basically to get to my seat at Anfield, I would have to walk through the dressing room and past the changing rooms and uh, and down the, the steps and, and up through the tunnel where the players walk. And I was like, this is just absolutely ridiculous having to do that every time. Now, of course, the Emirates and Old Trafford and the Etihad are all wonderful. But St. James's Park is a stadium I love. Always has a great buzz about it. It's in the city. Uh, it's got a unique setting to it with the one big stand and the, the small stand. So absolutely uh, love that as well. But, uh, yeah, so many other big stadiums that I've been lucky enough to be to go to uh, stand out. But uh, big Premier League games, yeah, they're the ones that hold the fondest memories. Now, speaking of St. James's Park, uh, since you lost your job at Fox, of course, you haven't really had a chance to talk about it on the Fox Football Podcast, but what do you make of the whole um, Saudi takeover thing? Yeah, well, it's uh, it's going to be interesting. I mean, there's some negativity around it, which you can understand, because it's a controversial nation taking over a Premier League club. But, uh, I don't see how they're going to be able to stop it. I know that uh, being sports, which is owned by... Qatar, of course, or is the media arm of, of Qatar is uh, is very much against it, and that's going to be a big issue for the Premier League to work through because they contribute a lot of money to the broadcast rights as it stands. But uh, whether that's enough to block the bid, I don't know. What it can do is make Newcastle into a very powerful club if all, if all of it goes through and they get access to all that money. Um, you know, Post-coronavirus, they can buy some big players, and when that club's up and going, they can be a serious force. They've got a big supporter base, so... Uh, yeah, I think it could it could potentially turn Newcastle into, you know, another maybe not straight away, but over time, a potential title challenging club in England, similar to what happened to Manchester City and Chelsea. Now, when I went on a European football trip about a year ago, I was uh, lucky enough to see uh, Arsenal, Liverpool, Anfield, but unfortunately, it didn't really go away. Five one to Liverpool, but uh, <laughs> you uh, you were in Europe during the Champions League final, is that right? Yeah, I was. I was at that game, 5-1 to Liverpool, and we were up 4-0 inside the first 20-odd minutes or so. That was um, that was awesome, that game. But, uh, yeah, I was there for the Champions League final, which was incredible as well. And, uh, yeah, I wasn't at the ground, but to be in Liverpool for it, what a party it was that night and, and in the city the next day for the parade. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the Liverpool fans who have said this is the best Liverpool team of all time, and it's hard to argue when you look at the Champions League triumph and the records that they've set in the Premier League this season, it's, it's just an incredible side. So oh, the atmosphere around the club was just unbelievable. And the amount of people in the city for the final, like a lot of people said, well, I can't get a ticket for the game and Madrid's so expensive. I'm just going to go to Liverpool and have a weekend there. And they did. I mean, there were like, you know, 700,000 people around the city for the parade from all over Europe. And a fair few Australians as well who said, I won't go to Madrid, but I'll go to Liverpool for the game and watch it there and enjoy the party. It was brilliant in that respect so a lot of interviews over your career who's been your favorite person to interview um yeah there's lots of different ones hard to, to pick it out i mean the ones that stand out i guess are you know, the most intriguing characters in football maybe in the last 10 15 years or so and that's jose Mourinho and mario balotelli I was lucky enough to interview both of them for a good 10 15 minutes apiece and then both of them yeah were <laughs> we interviews that i was excited for but anxious for as well because you don't know how they're going to go. So they certainly stand out as interviews. Thankfully, both went well. Uh, but there's been so many other ones. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to interview so many big stars during the uh, the Premier League era. Frank Lampard, Wayne Rooney, Robin Van Persie, Louis Van Gaal, Ryan Giggs, Darren Ramsey, so many. And uh, all of them were, were a great thrill to, to do. Um, so that's probably the the front runners in that respect, but there are so many across Australian sport and world sport as well that uh, you know, I certainly remember fondly. Have you had a particular interview where the, your interviewee has just been completely not into it from the start? Not really, to be honest. I mean, yeah, a couple. Joe Hart was tough on one or two occasions. Uh, Jack Wilshere was a little bit difficult on one or two occasions, but uh, not too many that are really disappointing. I mean, I've had a couple of 
questions that didn't quite land, which, you know, if you're interviewing a lot of big-name stars, that's going to happen from time to time. But uh, none that were really flat. I must say the Premier League players were pretty good at uh, at opening up. But, uh, yeah, a couple of moments, things haven't quite gone to plan. I asked Olivier Giroud about his hair and how he gets it so perfect, which was a question he got asked a lot. And I think by the time I asked him, he said he had enough of it, basically. And he said, that's it. Any more time to get asked that question? I'm just walking out. I'm sick of it. So uh, that was one where it didn't quite go to plan. But hey, the guy's got great hair. You had to ask it. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, well, speaking of uh, Olivier Giroud, I've got to give a shout out to the For Fuck's Sake podcast because you spoke about that same interview on there. Did It was really good. Um, so yeah, if you're a Victory fan, have a listen to that. Um, now, since you've uh, you've been all over the place, as we've said. What's your favourite sporting moment as a neutral, not as a supporter for either side? As a neutral? Um, good question. Look, covering a couple of British Opens, I love my golf, that was great. Probably covering an El Clasico, talking about a pure neutral, but there's no ties to Australia or um, you know Premier League. You're not going to be fully neutral because... You know, when Manchester City won the league, I was happy United didn't So, uh, as a Liverpool fan. So I uh, wasn't fully neutral in that respect. But you know, I was lucky enough to cover an El Clasico, Barcelona-Real Madrid, for the year that uh, Fox Sports had the rights. And, I mean, to be inside that stadium for such a big game, to be there pitch side, crossing to Australia, interviewing afterwards, that was awesome. Uh, the El Clasico was ridiculous. And, uh, yeah, that's one that probably stands out as a big event that I was able to cover and see live where I had no real ties to anything. And um, what would be your personal highlights as, as a fan? As a fan? Oof. I mean, yeah, some big Liverpool wins are always good. But, you know, watching the Socceroos was fantastic. And, you know, I wasn't lucky enough to see the Socceroos win while working for Fox, although I did in the 2010 World Cup and we beat Serbia. But, you now the 2014 World Cup, that game against the Dutch, Timmy's goal, that's one that really stands out. That moment was just beyond anything that you've ever experienced as a supporter, watching a Socceroo score a goal of that magnitude on insane. the world stage. It was just insane. And there was a second afterwards where, like, you know, you only know this if you're inside the ground and you see an incredible goal. There's a split second, like just the, like a crazy split second where things actually go silent because everyone's in complete shock that a goal like that has been scored. I remember it happened when Riley McGree scored that scorpion kick. Same feeling. I was in the ground for that too. And just a split second where you're like, it's dead quiet because they're shocked. And then you realise what's happened. And then, of course, you go absolutely berserk. And that happened with the Timmy goal. And uh, we all went nuts afterwards. And watching Australia play like that at a World Cup against a big nation like the Dutch, yeah, that was uh, a really good feeling. Now, you spoke about that Riley McGree goal. Uh, the night after that, victory played Sydney in Sydney, which I know we were both at. Is that one of your favourite A-League games? That is. In fact, that's probably the best game in terms of drama uh, that I've seen as a reporter in the A-League. I mean, that and the, you guys might not remember, but the, uh, the 2000 NSL grand final Perth glory against Wollongong Wolves, where it was 3-0 at half time to the glory and then they lost in penalties to the Wolves. That's another one that stands out. But uh, oh, that semi-final was crazy for the, the swings in the game and the drama with the coaches running on and Terry Antonis' own goal and then Terry Antonis' oh. winner. That was just chaotic. Like being able to sum that up and take stock of it is something that uh, you know, I haven't quite uh, experienced before in Australian football working on a game. So, yeah, that was an epic affair. Yeah, I remember that, being in the away end, first uh, away day in the A-League and all sprinting down to get around Antonis and everyone else at, right at the end after he scored that goal. is just insane. But we'll move on, uh, speak a bit more about the A-League. Now, it's obviously gone downhill in terms of attendances and ratings on TV, everything, really. What do you reckon needs to – what are the most necessary improvements needed to increase the level kind of over here? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a big ask at the moment because yeah. amid coronavirus, they could lose the TV rights. So, you know, I mean, my normal answer in a normal situation would be, you know, land a couple of marquees. You want to get some real big attention back on the league and then try and sustain that for a number of years, which they failed to do after Del Piero came. But financially, they're not going to be in a position to do that. So that's a worry. And then I guess the other solution is just try and unite the Australian football community. I mean, if you can 
get a second division on paper as soon as possible and start to get promotion relegation in place as soon as possible and make that financially viable, well, then uh, that can lead to a lot of interest and in getting a lot of football people on board and, and long-term improve the game. But, you know, without that, it's going to be a real struggle for a number of years because financially the league's going to be in a tough position and keeping quality players and maintaining interest around the game as a result is going to be incredibly hard. And I do have worries about that. So, of course, talking about Australian football, one of our greatest moments in football history in this country is the obviously the qualifier in 2005. I remember where I was. I was in a little bar watching it with my dad in Fitzroy. Um, where were you? I was in Perth still. So I only moved to Melbourne a couple of years later. So my last couple of years in Perth and I was working for radio. But that night I watched it with mates. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I had a few mates who were all massive Socceroos fans and, we all watched together in 2001 when we lost to Uruguay and then met up again in 05. And uh, obviously we saw each other in between, but you know, the same group of people watched that game in 05. And I just remember going absolutely nuts, like just the craziest celebration ever in front of the TV. It was, uh, it was just simply brilliant. So that's a night to remember. And then afterwards, you know, cause it was a couple of years, a couple of hours earlier in Perth, of course, with the time zone. So we all said, we've just got to go out. We were young, but we had so much energy. We were like, we just have to go out for a drink somewhere and, we went into Leaderville in Perth and had a few drinks and uh, people were partying in the streets and uh, enjoying the Socceroos win together. And I remember a young buddy, Franklin, who was in his first year back from Hawthorne, so he finished his first season at the Hawks, was back in Perth on some holidays and he was lifting people on his shoulders, carrying them down the street, the young buddy. So that was a pretty cool moment that I remember from that night. Yeah, well, I think that just about wraps us up for questions, but in the last little segment of the show, we like to do a little quiz. So you'll be going up against Jackson. Uh, Your name is your buzzer, five questions, and yeah, here we go. Uh, Question one, uh, so you're an Eagles fan and Jackson's a Pies fan. Uh, I think you were at the game, weren't you? I was the there, yeah. Final, I was yeah. in 2018, loved it. Yeah, uh, well, you were both <laughs> there then. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> So can you name two of the four multiple goal kickers in that 2018 grand final? Uh, Jackson. I think Dan got in Uh, first just. Two of the four multiple goal kickers in that grand final. Yeah, one Uh, for the Eagles and three for the Pies. Jordan Degoe. That's one. And Josh Kennedy. That's two. One point for Dan. Okay. The other two. Uh, We also – so Kennedy and Degoe kicked three. And Cox and Stevenson kicked two. Ah, yes, those, those were in my answers. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, question two. Uh, so just closer to the pin here, whoever gets closest gets the point. So Lee Broxham, victory legend, has played in the most games for an A-League club in all competitions, so FFA Cup, Champions League, A-League. How many games has he played for the victory? Jackson. Jackson. 330. 330. Dan, what do you reckon? It'd be around that. I'll say three forty-two. Well, you're closer. It's three sixty-two. Uh, question three: Australia's first international football game was a three-one loss in 1922. But can you tell me who the opponent was? Daniel Jackson. Jackson I think. Or do you want to give it to Daniel? I think it was Daniel. Okay. I, Daniel. I think I was just in. Okay. I think it was just in. Was it against South Africa? Oh no, it wasn't. Um, New Zealand? New Zealand, that's right, in Dunedin. Well done. Yeah, but I can tell you, I was having a look at the Wikipedia page and Australia's biggest loss was against South Africa, 8-0. <laughs> I knew there was an early game against South Africa that stood out. Yeah. Um, well, question four, so it's is it 2-1? Two, 2-1. One? Two, yeah, 2-1 two, one. One to two, Daniel. One. Okay, uh, so obviously living in England for five Premier League seasons, who won the most titles in your time there, Premier League titles, and how many did they win? Daniel. Daniel. Uh, that would be Manchester City with two. Manchester City with two. Can you name the other three? Yes. They would be Manchester United, Chelsea, and Leicester. Correct. And do you reckon Liverpool's going to still claim the Premier League this season? <laughs> I, uh, I do think we'll win it one way or another. I don't think that if it is declared over the season – they will not give the title to Liverpool. There may be an asterisk there, 
But uh, I think whether the season's completed, which I hope is the case, not just for Liverpool, but for teams like Leeds and for Leicester and for Sheffield United and all the clubs yeah, lower down the pyramid who are trying to win promotion, I do hope it's completed fairly. But uh, even if it's not, I think they will still give Liverpool the title because they are so damn far in front. Yeah, how just quickly, how do you think that will happen? Do you think there'll be no promotion relegations? Like uh, today was just announced in, in the Netherlands that there'll yeah. be no promotion relegation. The manager of Canberra, who are 11 mm. points ahead in the second division, say this is a disgrace, this is the worst disgrace in, in Dutch football. How do you think it will sort of help, uh, sort out in the Premier League? Yeah, it's a bit different in England. So they didn't award a title winner, but that's because Ajax was level on goal difference with the team in second. Uh, it's a bit different in England when Liverpool are so far ahead. So I think they can make a call in England potentially. And in terms of promotion relegation, if hypothetically it is declared null and void, and that's going to be tough. I don't see how they can how they can do it unless they put Leeds and West Brom up and play with two extra teams for a season. Honestly, I think they're trying to avoid that right now. I think they're just trying to do everything to, with only nine games left, try and finish the season fairly and then start the next one. But it might not be that easy. So, don't know. Nobody knows. And to be honest, I don't think they have much of a clue at the moment either. I'm sure they're working through a whole bunch of plans, but I'd be surprised if they've settled on any one contingency right now. But I just hope they can finish it because it would be terribly unfair, potentially, on a team like Leeds who haven't been in the Premier League for 15 years and are so far clear at the top to be robbed of their place. Yeah, well, moving on to question five, our last question before we go to a little audio clip at the end of the show from Matt Coleman. Big thanks to him. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, Dan. So question five, uh, is it 3-1 to Daniel? Yeah, I can't win unless you make it well, three points. It's a, it's a who am I? So we're going to oh. go, we're going to give some clues. Uh, first clue, five points, and then four points, and three points, two points, one points. Um, so, and you can only buzz in once each until you both buzz in, and then you can buzz in again. So, uh, f- for five points, uh, I'm a football or soccer player, and was born on the 24th of January 1987. Okay, if no one wants to buzz in, I'll move on to the four points. Second clue, I started my domestic career in Uruguay. I then went to the Netherlands and, and then England, and I'm now playing Spain. Daniel. Jackson. Oh, I, I think was, Daniel was, yeah. just got in. It's tight. That would be Luis Suarez. Luis Suarez, oh. yeah. I think I made the four point a bit too easy there. But congratulations, Daniel. 7 1. Thank you. Brazil, Germany. Uh, outright winner. Well done. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think that just wraps us up. Uh, thanks for coming on. And I've got to say, um, Big thank you for all the work you've done for the Fox Football Podcast and all the work you've done in the A-League and the Premier League. I've, it's been really good to see that stuff. So, yeah, thanks for that. Uh, thanks for having me on, lad. Much appreciated. Yeah, thanks for having me on. See ya. See you, mate. In London, in Sunderland, in Cardiff, in Paris, in Rome, in Rotterdam, in Cuyaba, in Curitiba, in Amman, in Dushanbe, in Bishkek, in Preston, in Leicester. Come on, Leicester! In Jordan, in Rabat, in Zurich. In Glasgow, in Manchester, at Twickenham, at Trent Bridge, at The Oval, at Royal Liverpool, at White Hart Lane, at Wembley, at Anfield, in Porto Alegre, at Royal Troon, Daniel Garb, Fox Sports News 500. And we're back. How good was that, Harper? That was really good. Daniel Garb, great. Really, really interesting. Thank you. Thanks again to, for Daniel for coming on. Yeah, really friendly bloke. Gave us some good insights into the journalistic world and, yeah, really nice guy. Yeah, definitely. So um, what's our little ending topic for today? So obviously Daniel is a very big media performer, so I would think media performers, who are your favourites? Oh, tough one. So many. Um, well, just on the kind of A-League level, Simon Hill. Yeah, Don't definitely a big one. Yeah, uh, Daniel Garb with him on the Fox Football Podcast, of course. Adam Peacock, really like him as a presenter. The um, Foz. The Foz, yeah, I'm not as big a fan of him, but he's, he's a bit uh, he's controversial. But, yeah, I don't mind him. He's all right. Uh, he's very insightful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He knows his stuff. I used to love watching him and Les on, on the World Game yeah. every Monday. It was a great time to watch. Yeah, Les Murray, of course. Uh, yep. Sadly, no longer with us, but he was oh, just great, legendary. Yeah, former. definitely one of the best football people we had in this country and shame to lose him so early. Yeah, well, Dan Garb has worked in the um, footy media, AFL media a bit as well in his time. 
any favorite AFL media performers? Well, BT. BT. BT's up there. Uh, who else? Oh, I've got to say, I'm not the biggest fan of Bruce McAvaney. Not really? You don't like Bruce? Nah. Uh, I, I much prefer BT, I have to say. I mean, BT's not my favorite, but I reckon. Oh, really? Bruce McAvaney's just, some of his comments sometimes I, just I, get I, on my nerves a bit. I, def- I, I definitely, I, I appreciate BT and the excitement he brings, but I do like Bruce just like sort of. No, he does know his stuff and just sort of calming it down compared to the... Does he calm it down though? Oh, yeah, he, get, he gets pretty far. He gets up. into it, but BT is just more than anyone yeah. really. But Dennis Committee, of oh, course. Yeah, Number definitely, one. definitely. Yeah. I'm way above those two, but yeah. Dennis. Anthony Hudson? Don't I, I like Anthony Hudson, Otto. Nick Davis. Yeah, um, I saw him, we were recording this on Anzac Day, he was doing a live recall of the Zaharakis game. I was in a live recall. Yeah, that, that I, I was watching the, um, the Collingwood Hawthorne from 2011 about the live recall, so yeah, that was good too. Prelim? Yeah, the 2011 prelim. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, that was a good game. That one. Uh, who else is, is there? I do like Darcy uh, Daisy Pierce. Sorry, Daisy. Daisy uh, Pierce, very yeah. insightful. She she does know her stuff, and when it comes to the women's game, she's she's all over it. It's it's amazing to watch. And now she's sort of moved on to like she was on while she was pregnant. She was on the AFL coverage, and she she's very knowledgeable in the sport of football. So it's really good to have her um, experience on there. Yeah, well, we don't get too many. Um, Women in the AFL media, especially, but yeah, not really. There's um, uh, Kelly Underwood, Kelly, Under- uh, I like yep. her, and uh, Sarah Jones. Yeah, Sarah Jones, definitely. Yeah, she's a good um host of on the Fox Footy coverage. Granddaughter of Jack Jones, of course, uh, Essendon player and uh, war veteran who passed away just uh, earlier this year, uh, and that was yeah, that was a bit sad. Um, moving on to cricket, uh, definitely love Richie Benno. Richie Benno. Well, oh. I must say, I don't know too much about him. I think I kind of missed uh, uh, Richie. It's just, I think I'm a bit too young. If you want to, like, uh, just calm down and relax, just put on a clip of Richie Benno quotes. It's just, he's just smooth. It's just like Dennis Committee is a smooth operator in a very exciting game. Richie Benno is a very smooth smooth voice when you just want to watch test cricket. Yeah, and um, speaking of cricket, you spoke about his podcast on the intro pod, Mark Howard. Mark Howard, big fan. I actually really do rate his commentary when he was doing the Big Bash League. Him, Ricky Ponting and Adam Gilchrist, they're just a great combo. And yeah, Jim Courier, of course. Yeah, definitely well. Jim Courier and the Oz Open every year. Yeah, he's he can get on your nerves a bit in the commentary box, but his interviews are always good yeah, after definitely. on the court. I think that just about wraps us up then. And before we go, I've got to give a shout out to our Patreon. We've just launched a Patreon page. So come support us on our podcasting journey. We're on uh, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash WD. WB pod, you can sign up for just three US dollars a month uh, to support it. And we need uh, 15 bucks a month to put our stuff on Spotify. And I've only got two parents. So if my two parents sign up to their five dollar tier, then we only need one more. So please let that be you. <laughs> yeah, uh, it'd be really, uh, really, we'll be really thankful. So. <laughs> Yeah, um, Give it a go. <laughs> we've got Twitter and Instagram as well at WDWBpod and we're on Facebook at Where Do We Begin? And yeah, make sure you leave us a five-star review. Give us a shout out to all your mates and yeah, see ya. See you, mate.